when you went in the water, it was like it, it was like warm. It felt like a kind of like a cold, like a lukewarm bath. It was very disconcerting. I, I did not enjoy it at all. Were there also yeah. three-eyed fish swimming around? Uh, no. This this wasn't like uh, Springfield. Um, <laughs> It, it apparently like there because like the risk is so high they're constantly doing testing so the water there like what i was told was like it's probably cleaner than like water in, a, in another lake that uh you know but is not being like the cooling system for a new killer oh it's very reassuring i like it yeah what have you all been up to general yeah if not uh going to warm uh, lakes and things i i mean i don't know uh i didn't i don't know how your guys's fourth of july was my parents came and visited so we toured philly um ate some food yeah. uh, went to the american revolutionary museum that was pretty cool um way cool but that's kind of the highlights of my life for the past week i guess Happy Fourth of July, yeah. Gosh, how about you, oh, Ben? I can't hear you. Uh, not much for Fort. Uh, my parents bailed on us. They did something else. I don't remember what. Um, so we went over to a friend's house, had a cookout, watched Independence Day the movie. Yeah. Um, we're all nineties kids. Um, yeah. So yeah, pretty low key. I, yeah, I don't know if. Maybe you guys can't hear me well because I got my fans going, or maybe I just need to talk louder. I don't I know. I can hear the fans. Yeah, mm. I wondered if that was ambient noise or static or something. It's frustrating that my computer is so much better at picking up the noise of these fans than my voice. I'll turn them off. I mean, I'll survive for a little bit here. Just sweat it out in my sweat lodge up here. Yeah, that sounds miserable. Yes, it does. I mean, I, my room is basically an attic, also. Uh, so yeah, we've been that's uh, not worse. We've been uh, camping down in the office, but right now William's uh, howling in his bath, so I can't be in the office for this portion of the uh, of the class. You know. All right, here we go. It's better. The, the dulcet tones in my voice are coming through loud and clear. All right. Less of the dulcet whine of the fans. Good. Man, thanks for letting me know, because I would never have uh, never been aware. Can you hear William pretty clearly, too? Uh, I can faintly hear him. <laughs> okay. I'm, for him. I'm not especially worried about it coming across on the, yeah. on the video or on the audio. No, it's so uh Corey's been a little under the weather. I think she caught whatever William has and he's just like going through the Rolodex of symptoms like every different thing. Um it looks like he's is migrating to his ear at this point after like uh-huh. runny nose and headache and chills and fever and vomiting and diarrhea. Just like every different thing. So Hopefully that means he's almost done because I can't think of any that many more like normal symptoms. Normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. So Corey's probably sleeping it off somewhere, but maybe she'll pop in. Um, but yeah, this is the triumphant return of 
Professor Kozlowski. Welcome back, dude. Present. Good to have you back. Um, so you and I have talked a little bit, but do you want to catch up with Steve a little bit, what you've been up to and uh, how things are going? Yeah, it's it's been a weird couple of months, for sure. Um, like, it was a weird semester to begin with, obviously. It's, it's 2021. It's still pandemic, and, you know, the students were very just stressed and exhausted the whole like being on campus while not being able to do anything is just a crappy situation for anyone stuck there um but my my semester very much ended with even more chaos um because like i had successfully graded all of the last minute papers in a absolute frenzy of trying to get everything done by the by the deadline um, ended up with quite a few students who had plagiarized their final assignment and thus failed, which I could have predicted because any time that I have an online class, especially under these circumstances, the students aren't often keen to plagiarize. Um, but for the first time, they made trouble about it. Hmm. So for a couple of days there, I was exchanging a lot of frantic emails with my department chair and the dean and stuff, um, and because apparently the students were very upset and. I don't know if they knew that they were sort of threatening, but they were kind of threatening me and basically saying, you know, like, we need you to reevaluate these situations. So we went back and forth a little bit um, after much stress because, you know, here I am with my job hanging in the balance while we're dickering over, you know, whether or not somebody plagiarized, except that nobody ever talked about whether or not they plagiarized. It was more along the lines of the student who you accused of plagiarism is upset that you accuse them of plagiarism, <laughs> never mind whether or not plagiarism actually occurred. Um, the whole thing with Montgomery County, Maryland. That sounds like some of their logic that they, that they had. <laughs> I, uh, where, like, the kids' feelings were, like, what mattered more than, like, you know, this and is, them passing. It's universal, um, man. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... This is a universal issue, and you know the this, the institution has to cover itself is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, yeah, we do need to double check. Like, mm -hmm. every professor is tired out of their minds. Every student is tired out of their minds. You know, it's just I was that obnoxious professor who was in fact being extremely conscientious and only accused students of plagiarism if I had legitimate evidence for it. Yeah. Um, so as it happened, uh, the two students who complained, one of them, I ended up giving them an incomplete. And for the last month, we've been working on a replacement paper, which she just turned in last week. And it was it was fine. She passed the class, no nice. problem. Um, so that, that is all resolved. Uh, the second student who complained, I thought was positively ridiculous because the paper was so obviously plagiarized top to bottom, and I basically said so in no uncertain terms, um, quoted the policy and everything, and after I said that, they haven't heard a word since, which is usually how these things go down. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, I feel fairly vindicated, for better or worse, and at this point, it's largely just done. Like, the same week that I was wrestling with all this was also the week that my computer decided to crap out on me, so I was, like, trying to re 
install windows, installing drivers, and figuring out what the heck was going on with the update. And I literally didn't even install Discord until like 10 minutes ago. Nice. So, um, yeah, we're, we're still getting up to speed. There's still a lot of things that I'm missing and not quite fixed. I'm not kind of okay with it. Like, I'm yeah. not in a hurry to get back to my usual pace or activities. Um, past month and a half, I've spent basically doing nothing but spending three or four days camping and playing video games, reading, and taking it easy. Yes. Um, I am taking the summer off. No classes, no no major responsibilities. I am sort of at my own pace, working on a couple of writing projects, um, both fiction and nonfiction. Like I've got a story that Wes has read um, that I'm still tinkering with um and i've got i am in fact putting the working on the next couple stages of my attempt to tackle conrad's heart of darkness for my decolonization project oh my gosh um <laughs> yeah <laughs> wait yeah. so, so just just to interrupt for a second the the decolonization project um you moved through uh tolkien recently i mean relatively recently right and and that was like a massive yeah, undertaking um he this one is like so much more massive right i mean he he hardly talks about race at all like uh, ob ostensibly it's like a very minor thing in those books that you can sort of read into if you're if you're looking for it uh whereas heart of darkness is like every everything in that book is about uh colonialism basically right i mean it's like it's everything in that book so gosh yeah. that's going to be uh it's going to be quite a project it, well and of course i i never do anything the easy way um <laughs> I, i'm actually like i wrote the first the first of the, the essays because i intend for this to be a multi-part project um but you know i've been sitting with heart of darkness on my on my like table where i keep my books for a year, like ever since I finished the Tolkien essay, I, I knew that Conrad was what I was going to tackle next. Um, and it just has been looming there, like, for an entire year. Um, and as I've been thinking about it, um, you'll remember, Wes, there, there was that one professor at Washington College who always taught the Heart of Darkness, even when he was supposed to be teaching Poe. Um, <laughs> and I remember talking to uh, one of the other professors about it he mentioned that like a lot of his thinking was sort of less about either Conrad or Poe or whoever he was ostensibly talking about and more about interrogating the canon. Oh, okay. Sort of part of darkness's room in the canon. Um, so, you know, each of the essays I've written for the decolonization project have very much been sort of a smokescreen for talking about something more serious like Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I was less interested in what racist undertones might be there as let's talk about freedom of speech and what that means in the racial discussion. Um, and Tolkien, again, there's only a few passages that seem to be borderline racist, but it's an opportunity to talk about history and the way that we sort of have to interpret it from the sort of more enlightened, more racially conscious perspective that we have today. Um, talking about Heart of Darkness means not just, you know, let's talk about colonialism, let's talk about the racism that Conrad is, is bringing to the table, which is 
much less ambiguous than either Bradbury or Tolkien. Yeah, all right, Bradbury. But also an opportunity to talk about the canon. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing. Like, the, the second part that I'm working on now is, is very much looking at what the canon is, mm-hmm. why we consider books like Heart of Darkness to be valuable, because at the end of the day, if we're going to if we're going to say, you know, this is racist and therefore shouldn't be taught, we're going to have to balance it. Like, you know, Bradbury, it's fairly easy to say, you know, this is a really worthwhile thing with only like a hint of racism. It's the same with Tolkien. But with mm-hmm. Conrad, it's literally saying, well, what are the pros and what are the cons? Yeah. You know, what is Conrad doing that is unique and irreplaceable and important? And is that unique, irreplaceable and important enough to warrant the fact that it's also, you know, indoctrinating people to be racist in a sort of backdoor kind of way. Mm. Um, so it's an enormous undertaking because I very much want to look at like how books become canon, why we consider them valuable. Yeah. You know, what does fiction actually teach us on a fundamental level? And then say, how much are those lessons worth? And when is it doing more harm than good? Yeah, that's a complicated calculus uh yes i don't envy you this uh giant undertaking you've you've set yourself um but i was going to say there shouldn't be any plagiarism you'll have to deal with on our end over here because we're not we're not making anybody write papers in the first place so anything (laughs) anything that people are writing is entirely on their own volition and won't be won't be graded at this time so not much incentive to plagiarize when you're doing it voluntarily. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, yeah, I mean, uh, in looking through the Discord here... Uh, Wait, I have a question. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, Please, uh, yeah. You guys are on the roll. So how did you, uh, <laughs> like, figure out that they were plagiarizing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that it's actually... Were they, were they copying off of each other, or...? <laughs> no. Um, in this case, it was all direct from source um, plagiarism. I have had a couple times that I've had like students who are obviously working together. Mm. Um, and I did have a, a couple of students who were using the same source. And I wondered if they were working together. I, I still have no idea. Um, what it comes down to is a combination of factors. Um, like we have, at the school where this was going down, we have Turnitin. Um, which is one of the big plagiarism mm-hmm. checkers. Like it plugs into Canvas or something like that. You can just like automatically run any submitted assignments through Turnitin. Um, and you know, I always take Turnitin with a grain of salt because Turnitin will report like, "Oh, this paper is 15% plagiarized," and I look, and it's because they like copied the question before they wrote their <laughs> paper. And you know, everyone uses the same question, so if two students do it, it counts as plagiarism. Yeah. Um, But I also do a lot of Google searching um, because a lot of students, a lot of students have sort of gotten into the habit of they will like copy and paste a whole page or something from like SparkNotes or, or, you know, any number of internet sources. And then they'll just like mess with it. Like they'll run it through Grammarly and make changes or reorganize sentences or something until they can run it through Ah. three places checker and it doesn't catch anything um so i literally had students this semester who were who like i said hey there's evidence of plagiarism from at so and so such and such a site 
Um, and they would say, but I ran it through Grammarly's free plagiarism checker and it said it was 0% plagiarized. I'm like, well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. I, I don't, I don't care what your percentages are. This is obviously not original work. Like mm -hmm. you're using the same points, the same beats in the same order from, you know, this site, this site, this site with enough of the same language that's very obviously taken from that place. So that's plagiarism. Like, I don't care how much you tinker yeah. with it. You know, mm -hmm. and like I have students who I think legitimately don't understand that. Yeah. Like they yeah. think that if they put in the work to reorganize the words around, <laughs> that's not plagiarism. And I, I would have students who would be like, I worked on this for 15 hours. And I'm like, so what? You like did three hours of research and then like 12 hours. Use a thesaurus. Yeah, like, <laughs> right. that's total plagiarism. And at this point, it's probably easier if you just write the damn paper. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, one thing I've heard, and I don't know how viable this is, but you find, like, a book on the topic, and I don't know what you got, what you were teaching, but, like, in a different language, and then you run that through, like, Google Translate. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I actually I don't know how, how that would that work. a little bit this year. They did um, that? Yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a native French-speaking African student um, in my class this year, and he was running a couple of French sites through, um, <laughs> through various, like, translation software. Um, and that, in that case, it was an honest mistake. Like, mm -hmm. he didn't understand English well enough to really do the assignment all that well. And I've had non-native English speakers in my class before, and I, I can usually work out some kind of arrangement with them. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'll let you, you know, borrow some language from one site or another as long as you, you know, cite it very carefully and, and yeah. so on. Uh, and... It was actually kind of advantageous in this case because he was writing his paper on, of all things, Moliere's Don Juan. So he had Perfect. it in the original French. Um, he referred to the French Wikipedia to, to get his information. Um, so, you know, once he did that, I suspect what he ultimately ended up doing was he wrote his paper in French and then just ran the paper through Google Translate. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine with me. Like, that works. I, I, don't, I don't need, you know, perfect grammatically correct English to know when my student has produced an original paper. Um, but, you know, quite a few of the other ones beforehand, it, it was very clear that he was just like grabbing the whole chunks of somebody else's thesis somewhere. Yeah. And that, that I can't yeah. let fly. Um, but yeah, like, I'm sure there are a whole bunch of solutions. Um, in general, even if that's what they're doing, it just, like, it reads like an alien wrote it. Like, mm -hmm. The algorithms are not sophisticated enough to reproduce the, the cadences of English speech. Um, so I always know that there's something wrong. Um, plus, to be perfectly honest, like 80% of the students who do turn in a plagiarized assignment in some way, in, the, in this way, they usually pick the wrong books. <laughs> They're not like, even I can't tell you. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times for my humanities class, like I teach all these Faust stories and Don Juan stories and my students will come in and they'll have a paper on like a different Faust that we didn't study in class and, mm. or, or like a completely uh, different Don Juan or like there, there is in fact a, a 19th century 
playwright who made like a Jetsons meet the meets the Flintstones style Don Juan meets Faust play. Whoa! And yeah, yeah, I, I have a copy. It's, it's like I've got this great edition of of Don Juan, the theater of Don Juan, which I've frequently used. Um, and then the whole thing is in there. Um, let me see if I can. Where is it? Come on, I know it's here. It should be easy to find. Somewhere at the bottom of your uh, camping bag. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, uh, no luck. Can't find the, the blasted thing. But yeah, there's definitely a Don Juan meets Faust play from the 19th century. And a ton of my students will, you know, they'll type Don Juan and Faust into the into their <laughs> search engine. And yeah, it's Christian Dietrich Grab is the author. There it is. Um, and you know, we never read it in class and they haven't heard any lectures about it and they're like desperately trying to make this work and it's <laughs> just not. So yeah, like criminal masterminds, I'm afraid they are not as far as <laughs> know, which works out for me pretty nicely. Um, but yeah, it's it's just like more than it's frustrating from the from the perspective of like having to confront students, it's just disheartening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like I, I spent that entire week uh, rereading um, Steinbeck's The Winner of Our Discontent mm -hmm. just because I wanted him to, you know, buttress my insistence on high standards, you know, the whole subplot of his son plagiarizing his paper on the American dream. Is it's fantastic. So Fantastic. Oh, it's so apt. Dude, have you um, have either of you read Anne of Green Gables at any point? I know the movie by heart at this point, thanks to Sarah. Okay, cute, cute. Uh, so, I, I, I don't, I don't know, Steve. Have you? Have, I was gonna say you're not even gonna let me answer, huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe I have. I don't even remember the book you just said, but maybe I read it. No, it's, I haven't read anything about Green Gables. Come on, it's, at least not that I'm aware. It's of. a classic, and I never read it as a kid. Um, but she has another series. Same author, L.M. Montgomery, has another series of books called Emily, and then other things like places and actions that Emily does. And the second Emily book involves a pretty important um, plagiarism subplot with Emily's rival, uh, Evelyn Blake. And Emily knows that Evelyn didn't write the poem that won the prize, but she can't prove it until they get stuck in a house in a storm and she finds some old papers in a cupboard of the house. And one of them has the poem that Evelyn Blake clearly stole uh, for her, her prize winning poem. So. I, just yeah, yeah. you guys ever it's... seen hey arnold <laughs> oh yeah here we go uh there's one episode i forget the asian girl's name oh phoebe, but phoebe she, all. she plagiarized she, she plagiarized uh, yeah oh my gosh and, uh, for nightmares. <laughs> oh my god yeah because like i think help because Helga was, like, going to win. But, like, Phoebe, like, literally just copied a different poem that she found in a book. Yep. And then, like, Helga didn't care, but it was it was kind of, uh, uh, I guess, like, almost like a telltale heart situation. Oh, or it's nice. just like, the, yeah, the yeah. guilt just got to her eventually. Look at that literary uh, reference. That episode nice. that, like, Helga wrote her effusive, you know, romantic poem about Arnold. And then <laughs> it finally wins and it gets read to the class and she's mortified. Yes. Yeah. Man, yeah. What a great show. Oh my gosh. Yep. 
but so just goes to show like this is not a a new problem per se it's always been around but uh the like you're talking about all the technology just makes it so tempting um not easy per se right they're still putting in tons of work to do this but they're just gosh it, it does it is just so discouraging to think that that's where they're putting their effort uh, and for what, right? They're, they're going to get caught. They've got to know that. Come on. Yep. And so. I mean, even, even if they didn't, there's like, I had a really earnest conversation with my mythology class this semester about plagiarism because I was so frustrated by it. And, you know, it's been rampant for the last year. Like, as long as everyone's been online and classes become so impersonal and professors yeah. so frequently distant, like, the temptation just becomes that much greater. Um, and I, and I talked to them, and I had one student who, happily enough, was willing to admit that he had plagiarized for other classes, but not, of course, for mine. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he was he was very blunt about the, the sort of, like, when you do not take the class seriously, when, when you, you know, are, are just getting it done for the sake of completing some general education requirement mm-hmm. or something. You know, it, it's not like you're, you're plagiarizing something for your major. It's it, it's just going through the motions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you combine that with the number of students who are taking a full load of classes while also trying to keep a, a full-time job, while also you know, having family responsibilities and just the basic social responsibilities that every college student has. You know, never mind all the stress and pressure to perform sort of brought about with COVID and all that, like, I, I, I don't blame the students who plagiarized. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll still fail, for sure. <laughs> right. um, that's, you know, what you didn't do the work, therefore, when I, like, I can't give you a grade at that point. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, and, and I'll tell them, you know, it's never personal. I'm not mad. I'm not even, you know, upset with you. I get why you did it. Like, I would be tempted under the same circumstances. But at the end of the day, you know, that's not good work. Like, mm-hmm. that doesn't show what you've learned. It doesn't, you know, fulfill the requirements of the class. And the last thing you want to hear is that your doctor plagiarized his way through medical school. school. Like, no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, on some level, more, more than anything, I think what, what frustrates and worries me about the situation is how cheap integrity has yeah. sort of become. Um, how, how readily today's students are, are willing to just, you know, disregard it. Like, like and it's because it's become so unimportant to our society because everyone is assumed to be out for themselves because every politician is assumed to be a liar because you know there's no there's no honor there's no you know incentive to to be honest um you know honesty is for suckers is kind of what it comes down to like if you want to get ahead in this world then you're going to have to to get your hands dirty that's what the tv keeps teaching that's what you know the people in power keep teaching that's how you know ceos and politicians and, and you know type a people get to the positions that they're in if you are not willing to do it then that's a, a mark of weakness mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. um and, and that's that 
scary. <laughs> like, you know, and I think of the, the Nietzschean idea of decadence, like a, a society that's, that's so corrupted by its own indulgent behavior that it's doomed to die. Like, this to me seems to be the hallmark of decadence. Like, as much as I disagree with Nietzsche about, like, 95% of what he says, <laughs> you know, there's so little for anything besides, you know, the bottom line, the, the profit, the, the what can you show for it, um, that, you know, actually doing something for the sake of doing it, for the sake of the enrichment that it provides to you personally, is just, it's disappeared from mm -hmm. our culture. It's just about. no longer exists. Um, and the people who are doing that are getting very much ground beneath the wheels of everyone flying farther and faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it is rough. No, yeah. I, so just to go back to the Tolkien thing, uh, which came up, you know, a little while back now. But, you know, I think... You don't have to go all the way back to Nietzsche to uh, to get that that uh, kind of perspective on decadence, right? Tolkien presents it a really different way, of course, um, in uh, like the sense of like what was in the past was better, right, and greater and grander, and we can never really live up to that anymore. Um, but uh, you know, he was he was a professor also, like in his day job, uh, and must have been sort of discouraged at times, I would think, by uh you know his uh his the level of of attention that his students paid him and the level of effort they put in perhaps uh but you know he's in a very different context of course but uh, just again to say like dude you're not alone uh it it's it's yeah it's a perennial uh difficulty i guess yep but uh but i was i was gonna uh just point out so yeah I don't, I cite my sources here in the discord and my sources are Ben's emails that he sends to me sometimes um, for these various games that we should play next. Uh, and then I just copy and paste them into the discord so that everybody can give it a look. Um, so at the end of our last conversation on worlds and clubs, Steve and I were thinking like maybe uh, Deus X would be the one to play. But the only thing is that then Steve was also saying he's pretty tired of the um, AI as the bad guy kind of thing, um, okay. as like the the sort of uh, structuring principle of the game. There's like evil AI out there, and so I have to ask Ben: Is yeah. that like a is that a big part of Deus Ex? Because I suspect it might be. Believe it or not. Okay memory serves, you might have the opposite problem. In uh. um, yeah, it is like, it is definitely not a pure AI who is the primary villain, for sure. Like, there are AIs floating around the periphery that is something you have to deal with, but most often they're on your side. Nice. <laughs> um, Pods. The humans who you've got to watch out for instead. Okay. Um, but it's also it's also a fairly a fairly porous line in Deus Ex. Um, there's a lot of discussion of cybernetic augmentation. Like that's kind of the whole central conceit. Like you are an augmented human, hmm. um, as and you work for an organization that employs a lot of like 
humans that have been, you know, augmented with their cybernetic implants for, for combat purposes or, or other reasons. Sure. Um, and as a consequence, you know, these are super soldiers in a manner of speaking. Um, they have powers that the, the average run of humans do not. But as a consequence, it's kind of hard to say, especially in a couple of, for a couple of characters, whether they are, you know, fully human or have replaced too many parts at this point. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm just, uh, gonna... just like the guy with the leg and Nier. <laughs> Going back to Nier Automata. Uh, I'm just going to read what you wrote here, Ben, because I think it's a good intro to the game. Uh, so for those who are out there who want to play along, I think, is it is it safe to say Deus Ex is the game we should do next then? Is going That's once, sense. going twice? Yep. I'm, I'm down for that. Cool. All right. All right. So it says... I'm down for it as well. I, I, I am as well. So this is so far out of my normal gameplay. But anyway, so here's what Ben says. One of these days we have to talk about this game. Deus Ex was the fullest realization of the early... Immersive Sim, a game design philosophy that emphasized emergent storytelling and gameplay rather than scripted sequences. It's a hybrid game, RPG FPS, that encourages a wide variety of playstyles and lateral thinking to solve problems. In any given level, you could charge into a room, guns blazing, overpowering your enemies, or stealthily bypass the same room using vents or camouflage, or create a possibly lethal diversion, allowing you to cross the room unnoticed or talk someone into escorting you across the room unharmed. Choice is key, which makes it all the more interesting and ironic that the story is all about power and control, conspiracies and rebellion, technology and humanity, one part cyberpunk sci-fi, one part philosophical pol political thriller. The game is way more linear than the two mentioned above, which were uh, Morrowind, I think, uh, and uh, Planetscape Torment. Torment. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so more linear than those, which is good because it's easier to discuss, you say, but player choices still exert an immense influence over the branching paths of the game. The interface and graphics are dated, and the learning curve is a little steep for the uninitiated, but I, Ben, have played it at least twice, both times well after its heyday, and didn't find these obstacles unsurmountable. There's also a free mod. Deus Ex Revision, which totally overhauls the game, fixing a lot of these problems. Haven't played it, though I will likely go this route the next time I play the game. I hear good things. Again, it's old enough to be played on virtually anything that runs Windows. Woo! It is currently on sale. Well, this was a few weeks ago, so it's probably not anymore. For 97 cents. Can you believe that? What? Okay. Yeah, the Steam sale is going on like today is literally the last day but apparently it is not on sale on steam for some mad reason no. so you'll have to pay the, the whole seven dollars no uh, but <laughs> okay. yeah and, and i wouldn't be surprised if you can't find it cheaper elsewhere like uh -huh. you, you can click that link see what it's what it's doing on gog um but yeah it's one of those games that like everybody knows everybody has it's not making anybody any money anymore Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Except insofar as I heard Square Enix, who now owns IDOS, uh, yeah. keeps releasing sequels. Um, but yeah, like it, it, it's pretty cheap. Should be easy to run on again. Just about anything that plays Windows, and probably a few things that don't. Cool. Um, and it is it is a classic, like a legitimate 
very foundational, super important game. Yeah. Like it, it is largely seen as sort of the pivot around the golden age of PC gaming. Like that's that is the game that best encapsulates PC gaming at its best. Well, the I mean, just looking at like the cover of this game, it it's very Matrix. Like it makes me think of uh, of the Matrix. Uh, looking at this guy's face, sort of looking up with his shades on, uh, in a, you know, sort of dystopian future background that's hazy and the light behind him. But um, so we're we're to play the revision version, the mod that's like helping with that's some of the up issues. To you. Okay. Um, again, I haven't played this revision, so I, I can't speak to to how well it both preserves the original game while also um, like updating the, the interface and stuff. Okay. It's what I'm going to be playing with. Okay. Although, if you want to play through the original, like, feel free. It is still doable. It's just rough. Hmm. What were you going to say, Steve? Yeah. Well, that sounds... I mean, I assume that there's just probably, like, quality of life mm-hmm. features, like, added in there. So, it's probably... I mean, I would have to imagine it doesn't do anything like change the story. So, I'll look into it and see yeah. uh, what that version actually does. But, yeah, I'll probably play the updated version if I can... Uh, well, I guess, yeah, it's a mod. So, yeah, I will be able to find it. So, yeah. No. Sweet. I'm going to probably do that. If you get it through Steam or if you get it through GOG, you should be able to find the revision for... Like it, it's a free mod for for Steam. You just type in revision and it'll track it down. Mm. The main thing that it does is it updates the graphics, like much better rendering, much higher fidelity. Just but everything else, I believe, is pretty much identical. Could you say a little more about the Square Enix connection there? Because I was really surprised to see that. I didn't think they had anything to do with this game, and then they're like on the, you know. Did they just buy the company that made it later on? Is that That's the what it came down to? Okay. Um, Deus Ex. Well, there's quite a bit of industry scuttlebutt surrounding Deus Ex. Actually, hmm. like th- these are the days of, of some of the first high-profile game developer rock stars. Warren Spector, especially, was was one of the major players behind Deus Ex. Um, and this was back when Deus Ex and a lot of the the games at the time were being released by IDOS. Um, I believe that they, I think it was either them or somebody else who, who had done the thief, um, beforehand, and they were sort of iterating on this when they when they made Deus Ex. Um, but shortly after the release of Deus Ex, they released Daikatana, which they spent tons of money on, and it flopped like crazy, and IDOS kind of just drowned <laughs> um, and stopped existing, and the license just sort of hung around unused until Square Enix bought up all the IDOS IPs somehow hmm. um, in the early, late 2000s or early 2010s. Um, and they started uh, like releasing reboots of all of the, the IDOS properties. So you get, you know, your new Tomb Raider, you get your new, um, uh, again, what else did they, they, they did in fact make a new theme game, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody did anyway, Thief 4, mm-hmm. which was apparently not all that great. <laughs> um, but they did also release in 2010 or 2011, it was Deus Ex Human Revolution, the first sequel in like six or seven years at that point. Um, and it was good. Like, it, 
got me through my first weeks in Boston, just oh, coming nice. home every day and being able to play play through it. Like it, it's one of my one of my favorites and one, one of my games that I have a really close connection to. Um, and it captures the spirit of the original very well, um, even if it's not nearly as sophisticated or or sort of complex. Um, just because you know you, you're going to take all the space that used to be reserved for storytelling and levels and then fill it up with next-gen graphics right. instead. <laughs> um, but yeah, so originally Square Enix didn't have anything to do with Deus Ex, but since since the buyout, um, they are they are the the proprietors of the intellectual property, and in my opinion, they've been doing a good job with it, like better than I would have expected, honestly. Okay. Um, both Human Revolution and Mankind Divided have a lot of good to say about them. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I I was unaware. I guess that Square was, um, you know, picking up these sorts of properties. Uh, like I knew that they had that massive merger with their former rival Enix, right? Way back when, um, right? The Dragon Quest and the Final Fantasy like fused into one, you know, company. Uh, but then, like then why would they be interested in picking up these totally different sorts of games? Um, it's, it surprises to me, I guess, because, well, I don't know, maybe they aren't that different. Because uh, this, is, this is part of our question that we were chewing over last time, too, without you to guide us, Ben, was like, so what is the big difference here? What makes a uh, Western RPG or a, a computer RPG different from a, you know, a JRPG that, we're, we're so, that are near and dear to our hearts? Um, I mean, there's a lot, like, there's a lot of different factors, many of which are kind of weirdly subtle. Um, again, I think I've referenced it a couple times in our conversations about RPGs, but, like, Game Maker's Toolkit has that great video on the sort of migration of Western RPGs to Japan and their development to Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest, um, and then sort of the way that they bounce back to America. Um, but I think... I think what it comes down to is both the Western RPG and the JRPG have sort of evolved out of Dungeons and Dragons, especially yeah. um, through more or less direct means. Um, what changed is what each sort of culture gravitated to about the original Dungeons and Dragons formula. Um, so where, Japanese RPGs tend to focus on a more linear game structure with a, a sort of obvious numerical progression where, where they're focusing on, um, you know, like, here is your your avatar, your, your protagonist, getting progressively stronger over the course of the game, mastering their skills, you know, overcoming unspeakable obstacles and, and monsters and so on and so forth. Like, you know, the joke about Final... In the end of I at the end of every Final Fantasy game, you kill God. <laughs> right. um, or it's pretty darn close. Yeah. Um, for the Western RPG designers, they were much more interested in D&D's legacy of player-driven storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, say what you want about Final Fantasy. Like, as much as there are some, some deviations, a lot of choices to be had in certain games, most JRPGs have you on rails they have a story they want to tell to you yeah. Um, yeah and you're there to participate in it and 
makes for some great stories in a lot of cases. Um, for, for the Western RPG scene, like even as far back as Wizardry and Ultima, mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of emphasis on letting the player sort of decide who and what they were. Um, do you want to play as a wizard or a rogue or a fighter? Do you want to, you know, take the campaign in order or go on any number of side quests and sort of get lost in the minutia? Yeah. Um, do you want to solve problems in just one way or have a whole bunch of different options at your disposal? Um, and as the, the, you know, when Doom showed up and like totally wrecked what everybody thought of the new game, right. um, there was there was a big push very quickly to kind of fuse the Western RPG structure that had mostly been running rampant, like CRPGs, like the Dungeons and Dragons games, like Planescape Torment, mm-hmm. um, and fuse that with the new burgeoning first-person shooter, right. Um, so you get, you know, you, you get the later iterations of, of Ultimate. You get the first and second system shock. You get Thief. Um, but in addition to the sort of like, let's do our RPGs from our first person perspectives, um, there was sort of this move to the later part of the 90s and the early 2000s to incorporate more system-driven storytelling. Um, to, to let the player manipulate the forces that the game had been structured around rather than sort of imposing a story on the player. Um, so the first, like the first game that everybody points to as being part of this immersive sim philosophy was, was the first Thief, um, which is a great game. Like Thief the Dark Project is wonderful. Um, it's, you know, very atypical for the first person shooters that were in vogue at the time much less of the, you know, twitching action and, and, like, circle strafing, and more of this sort of quiet, measured stealth pace. Like, it was largely the first stealth game in that sense, besides, like, old-school Wolfenstein. Um, and, hmm. you know, the, the, what made Thief so compelling was the fact that, you know, they basically just presented you with a map. Here it is. Go steal some stuff. Um, and it was up to you to navigate the hallways carefully so your you know even your footsteps wouldn't make too much noise on, on certain like surfaces um, you could like turn out the lights with your your water arrows and the guards would respond in different ways and you could use that as a distraction use it to your advantage um, Deus Ex is sort of the, the full realization of that idea there are so many interlocking systems so many sort of ways to manipulate and, and out, outwit the AI. Um, so many different approaches that you can take to any given problem that really offers the player a lot of freedom to decide how are we going to build my character? How am I going to solve these problems? Am I going to you know go for a non-violent run and try not to kill anyone? Or am I going to, you know carve a bloody swath of destruction wherever I go. Um, and there are even some major choices in the course of the game, and they're not even presented to you as, like, choose from this list of options, Mass Effect style. Mm-hmm. Like, there's definitely a point where, you know, you, you are confronted by one of the, the main enemies in the game, and 
you can, you know, go quietly with them or you can fight them. Like you can attack them on the spot. Um, you know, you can kill characters before you're supposed to, if you are so inclined. And in some of those cases, you're probably going to get just run down and annihilated. But in other cases, the story will continue. You get to decide. Um, so, you know, it, it's a really interesting idea. And Deus Ex has been sort of, you know, as, as clunky and old as it, as it is now, you know, 20 years after its original release. Um, it's still very much the inspiration for a lot of these systems-driven games. Like, the immersive sim has evolved dramatically in that time. Um, so now you have, like, games like Gone Home, which are non-violent, but still have a lot of the same sort of ideas um, floating around the periphery. Um, not to mention, you know, all of the emphasis in, in contemporary games for, you know, player choice and moral decision-making and all that stuff. Um, a lot of that all goes back to Deus Ex. Um, and I think a lot of, you know, that, that Deus Ex is kind of typical of that distinction between Western and Japanese RPGs insofar as it is, you know, choice first, player-driven storytelling, interlocking systems, and not, you know, railroaded into a particular story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's quite the sell. I mean, as far as a turning point then, um, it can you place it time-wise for it? You said it's about 20 years ago now that it came out. Like, I, I feel yeah. like I remember you telling me about this game uh, back in college and stuff. Uh, so I think you'd played it before then, I guess. Um, but, like, where, where are we time-wise here uh, for the first episode? 2000, 2001, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, like... Wow. So, <laughs> Different world. Yeah, it really was. So, you know, your reference to The Matrix is, is not unwarranted. It was very, very much released, like, the year after The Matrix came out. Oh, okay. So okay. It's, it's very clearly borrowing a, a lot of the aesthetic, and I think that's a deliberate choice on their part. Um, but it's also, like, it wears some of its references right on its sleeves. Like, you will find, you know, you, you'll be wandering across the, the game world, and you'll run across, like, literal books with quotes from, the man who was Thursday, all over the place. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, like, it, it just comfortably quotes Chesterton for no good reason, <laughs> um, which probably endears it to me even more. Uh, there's also very much a, a sort of neuromancer, cyberpunky vibe sure. about it, which, you know, even more than, than The Matrix, I suspect, because The Matrix was sort of, you know, compacted into those two hours to tell its story and build its world. Um, where Deus Ex is, is going to give you many more opportunities to sort of dive into the, the lore and the world building that have, that have gone into it. Okay. Uh, but it's also very much indebted to that very particular breed of like 90s conspiracy thrillers. Okay. Um, like, you know, Mel Gibson's conspiracy theory or, or the, you know, the, the very weird takes on early internet culture like the net with Sandra Bullock like it's kind of steeped in that sort of aesthetic and paranoia for that matter cool. um, but it plays with it like it's not it's not taking it honestly the way that you might expect it to be among certain groups today um, it's very much using that as an opportunity to 
tell a story and to talk about politics and to talk about big ideas. Um, show how. What's this? Yeah. Uh, like, you said something about Mel Gibson? <laughs> yeah. Um, Got kind of hung up on that too, sorry. Okay. Did you. Did you never see the what? What is a conspiracy theory? The the movie with Mel Gibson. I, I was gonna throw oh, out no. I was gonna throw okay. out um hackers. Is that another reference yep. point that might help? I don't know. That's another like yeah. bad '90s movie, but like so bad it's kind of good. I don't know. What's the Mel Gibson thing? The Mel Gibson one, like it's the one that I have the biggest connection to because it was you know a movie that I saw when I was a kid back in the '90s. But the, the whole premise is that like Mel Gibson is a former secret agent for like the CIA or something, um, and one of like the major plot points is that every time he goes to a new city, he has to go to a local bookstore and buy The Catcher in the Rye, and this apparently sets off a series of flags that alerts his handlers <laughs> so he can like track him down and keep tabs on him, like. Because, of course, nobody buys The Catcher in the Rye. Like, um, but he's apparently like, psychologically conditioned to do this. So, you know, it's this whole shadowy body of, of you know, people pulling the strings of our society. You know, very Illuminati, very, you know, like, what are the Masons actually up to? Um, all that sort of thing. And, and like I said, the, the game runs with it. Like, the Illuminati actually do feature as one of the major factions in any sense. <laughs> um, and, you know, without a trace of irony on, on the side of the game, like, you're, you're meant to treat them as a real threat, but at the same time, it, it's just silly and camp from, from the sort of outsider's perspective, and it just makes the world all that much more ridiculous in, in a sense. Cool. Um, but it's fun. Like, it, it's fun and it's just playing with these ideas and it, it's just having such a good time about it. It's very obvious that the developers are just like running wild with these ideas, um, both mechanically and from a world building perspective. The other, the other touchstone I was going to throw out there is uh, Metal Gear Solid. Cause you mentioned thief um, like the sneaking and whatnot. And so that made me think of MGS uh, from like, because again, I'm not like playing games on the computer at this time in my life. I but I am playing them on, on systems, you know, um, right. PlayStation and and uh, you know Super Nintendo and whatever. But so, uh, how does does that fit into this at all? Uh, is either as a an influence uh, directly or is something that they're kind of pushing against? Um, is there much sort yeah. of dialogue there? I suspect that Metal Gear Solid is participating in the same conversation. Mm -hmm. um, like, as a sort of early stealth game in its own right, like it was, it was very much contemporaneous with with Thief. And, um, or let me see, like, yeah, this was terribly earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, uh, it was. I imagine that Kojima had very similar ideas in mind, that they're working mm -hmm. from the same playbook, in a manner of speaking. Um, and I suspect that they are bouncing off of one another. Like, the early Metal Gear games were obviously fairly fairly primitive, as I recall. Yeah. Um, like, doing the stealth thing, but, you know, there were only so many systems to interact with. Um, I imagine that it's, you know, games like the first Metal Gear, or the first couple Metal Gears, that Spectre were sort of riffing off when they were building Deus Ex. Like, let's let's take those ideas and turn it up to 11. And then, of course, by later Metal Gear Solid games, Kojima is bouncing the same ideas yeah, yeah. in, you know, 
again, so, you know, they're very much passing the puck back and forth here. Cool. Um, but it, I don't know too terribly much about the Metal Gear franchise. Like, weirdly enough, the only one that I've played for any great length is the fourth one, because it was the hottest new release for the PS3 when I got mine. Okay. Um, so, yeah, my... my my relationship is, is limited there, and I, I really can't speak to it all that well. No, no, no problem. No, I, I think I only ever really played two, and two was like lamentably short and did not feature the uh, the solid snake character that everybody liked, and so it was like this right. huge disappointment. But I thought it was cool. Like, yeah, it's interesting. Um, but again, these are not the kind of games I really played so, uh, much. Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Yeah. Oh no, no, I was just gonna say so. If we're making decisions, I mean, I assume that those influence the the overall story, or do we get to like the same end result? Or mm -hmm. I, I guess mm -hmm. like how many endings are there? Um, there the are Deus Ex. A few. If, like I okay. know there's a minimum of three because there's like a really big like end game decision that you have to make, and you can make it in one of three directions. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, there are multiple, like, there are multiple decisions that you can make throughout the course of the game that influence even how that plays out. Like, um, rather than, you know, every decision matters Walking Dead style and, like, the, the end, you know, cutscene or, or whatever, very, very early stages of the game, um, yeah. I'm pretty sure that there are only the three major endings, but quite a few noodly pads that can get you to any one of them. Hmm. Um, and that's so kind of like near Automata. There you go. In some ways, but where near Automata is kind of like, you know, th there are multiple. A endings. joke. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like many of them are, are silly or, or sort of throwaway. And, and at the end of the day, there is like a true ending, mm -hmm. so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and then near obviously uh you, you know like the joke endings didn't add anything to the story it's not like you learned anything new by doing them yeah so yeah there's kind of like a funny throwaway yep but, but for deus ex like they literally the the last confrontation i won't call it a boss fight because it kind of isn't especially if you like do it in certain ways um it, it very much asks you a fairly impressive philosophical question like, how do you want the world to look going forward? And it's up to you to decide. Um, and, you know, a lot of those decisions are unaffected by decisions that you made earlier on in the game. But, like, from the perspective of the player, from the person who's, you know, playing the game, you decide what your character would choose in this case. You decide what this game has taught you in a manner of speaking. Cool. Um, and that's on the macro level. Like, again, I, I, that's one of the things that makes Deus Ex great is that it has a lot of decisions to be made on that macro level, shaping the way that the story is told, but also on the micro level, like how you face every encounter, how you get through literally any room. Um, like, there are the whole confrontations, whole combat scenarios that you can just bypass if that's not what you want to do. Um, like, anytime that you're infiltrating some facility, you have a 
bunch of different approaches that you could potentially take. Like, do you want to go in the front door and shoot everyone your way? Do you want to go in the back door? Do you want to climb through the vents? Like, tons of options at every stage. Um, so, again, like, not a whole lot in the way of, like, branching paths to different potential endings, but a lot of player choice, even even so. Right on. So okay. the, the, the plan then uh, would be Ben, who knows this game, will tell us how much we should play, I guess. Um, you don't have to like map out the entire thing. Uh, but just for like the next, yeah, I got it. the the first few, the first few go rounds. Um, do y'all want to keep meeting weekly through the summer and play at a uh, like a at a clip, or sort of like space that out with other things? Um, like we I could. Ben was taking the summer off. <laughs> yeah, exactly, or he is. We have to. Ben is taking the summer off, but I think I can handle a couple hours of video gaming and. Discussion. Exactly. So yeah. So that's really my question. Like, how much do you want to play each week? Uh, just let us know, and and we'll we'll post that and go from there. Um, but the other thing, so in between to like intersperse with this, I do want to talk about Stardew Valley sometime soon. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I want to get uh, the sisters involved with that. So Steph and her sisters play that, uh, or had played that quite a bit um, through the spring, and uh, you know when they had time and stuff. Um, so I'm going to try to find a time they can all do that. Um, and I think that would be more than one. Nice. Yeah. So I was yeah, figuring couple, so. this would be a good, yeah. So a good thing. So we might have to find like some alternative times to make that work for everybody. Uh, so, you know, we can continue doing the Thursday night thing, uh, either weekly or every other week or whatever then we can find some times to get everybody to talk Stardew Valley, which is a game I don't know at all, really, uh, but that I think other people do. So, um, so that yeah, can... was, was that the, was that the, like, I, I think the last time I was at your house in Gaithersburg, like uh -huh. seven years ago, um, <laughs> Steph was playing Stardew Valley and she was like trying to get me to play it. Is that, does that sound right? Was that the game that she was playing? Yeah, uh, probably. It's been out that long. If it's not that uh, one, it's the previous one. Um, so okay. there's like, there's okay. there's that one, and then there's one called Starbound, um, oh, okay. that was like in beta forever and ever, and it was in turn based on Terraria, which she also loved to death. So she's like, very much been a a fan and on the bandwagon with this like before it was cool. So yeah, it could be any of those games. I, I don't recall, uh, but yeah. Okay, but All I'm right, sure. Yes. I, I don't know anything about the game. <laughs> right. um, beyond that like one cop like one of them came out in the series so yeah um so I, yeah i was just trying to figure out like was that the same game like I, I think it was but okay so yeah uh well like i think i think it makes for a really interesting discussion even when you don't know much about it other than like that it is such a big so kind of, it's it's kind of like animal crossing but in a different way right it's like this huge phenomenon um that you don't necessarily have to play to sort of like be drawn into, <laughs> you just like know about it. Um, and so that's, that's part of what I was going to talk to them about. But, uh, but they, they, I know Olivia in particular wants to go into like more about each of the characters and like 
um, more of the sort of the backstory and stuff uh, for for all that. So I'll do maybe do a little bit of research. Yeah, my my schedule is flexible, so nice. Okay. Whatever works for them. Just you know, give me a little bit of notice. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, cool. And so the other thing, uh, I have one more thing, and then we can we can wrap up. But um, at our leisure. But there is a a reading that I want to do, a little summer reading. So uh, there's a podcast I listen to called The Game Study Study Buddies, and they are going to talk about this book next month. So I want to read it before that and and try to one-up them if possible here. Um, This is the dissertation on interactive fiction, the computer story game adventure. Uh, Supposedly, this is the first doctoral level writing on video games. Period. Like as far as uh, like writing about games as literature, perhaps might be the qualifier there. Um, it's by Marianne Buckles, and it's from 1985, and it's free online, so that's cool. Uh, it's easy to access, um, and it's not hard to read, really. It's like compared to uh, Cybertext or Brothers Karamazov, uh, this is a this is really pretty light reading, actually. Um, she's Got some interesting points, though. So it is worth taking a look at um, if you have some some spare time. So I posted that in our reading yeah, channel. Sure. Yeah. Good. Uh, How long is it? I guess I can take a look. It's, yeah, I mean, it's long, but it's like these old, uh, you know, typewriter pages that have been scanned in. So it's like there's not a lot of text on each page, but it's like right. 300 pages or something. And there's like, you know, some pages of footnotes. Here and there, so uh, it's pretty awesome, though. It's a, yeah, it's a, right. yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's it's um, it's a PhD. Sounds in, more on par, like off, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's doable, and and maybe it's not something you have to read, read like every chapter, because she goes into some weird cul-de-sacs. I would say, um, maybe just because of whoever was like advising her and like making her write this thing for her PhD. Uh, she talks about some like unusual uh connections like with folklore and um with like um medieval romance uh novels and things like very interesting and weird stuff that i don't know maybe maybe less germane to uh our discussions of visual novels in some places so you could kind of skim it but yeah yeah which by the way uh world's end club ben you didn't you didn't need to play that one. I, I think I think you might have made the right call on that. Um, but uh, but it was pretty fun, like a fun intro to Japanese geography. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also uh, the new Somnium Files was just announced as well. So yeah. So there's that. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Although it doesn't really bode well. Like I, you know, I know Ben didn't like the Japanesey pervy old guy um, <laughs> trope or you know characteristics of the game, and then like the release trailer, I think they said like, yeah, you're a lot better than that. Oh, and then I argued like it really wasn't that perverted, and then in the uh, trailer, it's like you're much better than that like perverted guy uh, from the last game, and like literally <laughs> call him perverted. So. I know. Um, again, Which... I, you know, if you want to look at uh, the Somnium files, there are some cringy parts of it, but 
um, it, it does get better with as time goes on. So, yeah, I, they you really, know, I'd give it another shot if I were you, or I suggest that you do. They they mock him for no real reason. I mean, it's like it's in there as a joke. I feel like um, yeah, Date's Date's woes as far as romance uh, is concerned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a fun game. I don't know. So, uh, so the visual novels thing is there on the back burner. Uh, that's a that's like an important reading for for studying that genre because she's talking about adventure, the original like text based adventure game, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, have you have you played that one uh, or just uh, heard about it? I have not. Yeah. Um, I've played a couple of based adventure games, um, like I've tinkered with the the original Zork. Yeah, there's. Um, a... <laughs> And I've also spent some, some significant time navigating the, the wild labyrinthian interstices of Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy cool. text-based adventure game, um, which you can find online. They've they've updated it with graphics, and that makes it. <laughs> that um, that gets a mention in this he, paper. He was actually, yeah, he he actually had quite the hand. Like he wrote it, so you know he he was fascinated by the, the possibility of um, computer games, and yeah. like he worked on that. He worked on Starship Titanic. Um, so yeah, that, that that's my other major connection there. And it follows the the, the book, TV show, radio show. <laughs> right. Has so many um, versions, yeah. Yeah, but there, there was an especially nasty little trick that he put in there where if you do not feed the dog the cheese sandwich in the first area, um, you can't beat the game because he will inevitably devour you. No! Uh, that's So, the yeah, the way that the... Um, what is it? The, the text, right? The uh, stories and sci-fi um, feed into you know, text adventure games... Um, is in many ways like more playful i think uh so it's like the play the play element is like there from the beginning i find that so interesting like in some ways the um the text adventure games on the computer are even less playful than than the actual books that they're um sort of inspired by like uh so like a douglas adams um or a or a tolkien right because again like so much of the board game Dungeons and Dragons goes back to Tolkien, and then it directly feeds into uh, computer role-playing games, right? And and adventure uh, was also like drawing on some of the the like exploring caves and you know seeing volcanoes and stuff like passages from Tolkien directly inspired it too. So so there's all these kind of connections back to literature. Um, that I find I find quite interesting. Uh, well, anyway, so that's that's just my little my little rant on that. Um, why people should still read books, uh, even if they like playing games. Uh, but I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure. Uh, uh, you're you're attacking me. Like. <laughs> uh, yeah, Steve, how far did you get in Brothers K? Since we're uh, safe, we're safely past it for now. Well, dude, it's it's not going anywhere, so there's there's no rush, um, and yeah, 
just uh, do give that dissertation. Uh, any other any other stuff, news or suggestions or anything for the uh, for the uh, July eighth meeting of the Video Game Academy here? No, I got nothing. All right. Because it's late. So one thing I would say yeah. from a practical standpoint, if we, I guess we are playing Deus Ex yes. for next week's session. It could be um, for next week, or it could be for the one after. I don't know okay. yet. What do you Whichever think? Whichever one we decide, um, fortunately, the, the first endpoint is really obvious. Like, there's this, the, the infamous Statue of Liberty mission is kind of one part tutorial and also one part sort of vignette in its own right and happily you can complete it start to finish in like well somewhere between half an hour and an hour okay. um, and it is very self-contained so I would recommend that as our as our logical stopping point rock on yeah I've got some time I think to play it by next week if that is good for everybody uh, or we could yep. just push it for a week and see if we can get more people on board I don't know nah, I should be able to to play for next week cool. especially if it's only going to be like an hour yeah it's it's not that it's, it's just a lot of introduction of systems and you know there is entirely it is entirely possible that you may have to like restart a couple times um i believe this is in the age of save scumming so you are welcome to quick save to your own advantage <laughs> nice um no shame in it i will definitely be needing to do that i'm sure i'm sure well, cool. Well, yeah, because I think it'll take me more work to wrangle everybody for Stardew, but I will try. And if that works out, then maybe we'll do that. So either way, uh, let's yeah plan on playing about an hour in to the Statue of Liberty and all that. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, hope you have a good rest of this week, and I'll see you next time. Yep. Cool, cool. Very well. See ya. See ya.